they go. Do you guys want your kids to go back? I'm sure they won't get lost. Just have them follow the herd. If you want to keep them with you up front, that's totally fine. You're welcome to do that too. We want you to be comfortable. Until uh, I start preaching, then that probably will change. But <laughs> Maybe not. You might be way tougher than me. So we're going to go ahead and get started again. Um, I thank everybody for being here. Thank you so much for coming. Every one of you guys are a tremendous value and blessing to the kingdom of God. It's uh, amazing to see you here every week, and um, we would love to see you more often. This is why we have so much set up. Uh, so we encourage you to pay attention as the announcements are going on so you can be more a part of what we're doing and just be a part of our life and our family. We're not a church that emphasizes upon work. We, we put our emphasis upon relationships with first God and then people. And we feel like if you do that, the work just naturally starts to happen. I've always had a mentality about me that if you have to tell people to go evangelize or share their faith, then it's not in their heart anyway. Right? If you have to tell people to give financially, then it's probably not in their heart anyway. Thank you, bro. So we just leave that part up to you, and we just try to love you where you're at, and you come be with us as much as you want or as little as you want, and we're just happy to get whatever part of you we can. Amen? So we're glad you're here. We have been in Ephesians, and we are going through the entire book verse by verse. We got a long ways last week. <laughs> we, we got verse 1 of chapter 4 done, and that was it. So... Uh, there's more to, to this than we realize, and um, it's very important also as you're reading Paul to understand that um, the thoughts that he conveys uh, blend through the other epistles that he has so we can begin to gather other uh, additions to certain books of the Bible by adding certain thoughts he has to other churches. Does that make sense? So we're going to be in Ephesians 4, verse 2. We've already gotten this far. So we haven't done too bad, um, but keep in mind, we're, we're inching our way up to why Paul is writing this letter, because Ephesians, again, uh, is the practical reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the blueprint by which all church should be modeled, by which all relationships should be modeled, by all families should be modeled, and I said it every week so far, and I'll say it again, if you took every book out of the Bible and God left us with just the book of Ephesians, we would have enough to be able to have a well-rounded idea of what God expects from us, what he's done in us, eternal reality, present reality, and how to operate everything in between. So if you've never read the book, you might want to get into it, okay? You're welcome to go back and listen to our previous sessions. They're online. Uh, Eric back there, where's Eric? There he is. He uh, helps us with our podcasts, so you guys can yeah, give him a hand for that. Um, we pay him a lot to do that. Actually, he doesn't get paid at all. He makes about as much as I do. So thank him, because he puts a lot of time into this. Um, takes him a long time to put those up, and you can pretty much go to any platform you want, whether it's uh, Google uh, or, or uh, iPhone platforms or whatever it might be. Or uh, I think you've got most of them covered, right? You can just find any spot, any uh 
podcast platform, type in Proclaiming Jesus, and then you can go through and start listening to certain things we've had in the past, or you can go to the website and listen to those as well. All right, so what we got through last uh, week was verse 1, where Paul is beseeching and begging the church of Jesus to live a certain way, to walk a certain path and a certain trail, because how we live determines our authority in this life. I know a lot of people think that we have authority just because Jesus gave us that, but if we don't live under the the umbrella of that authority, if you will, then we completely undermine the authority we've been given. You with me? Okay. It takes a, a practical lifestyle to be able to bring forth the power of the gospel. I think that's one of the things the American church has done very poorly, is that she's gotten so spiritual in her idea of the gospel that she's missed the practical, tangible things. And we look at people who are super spiritual as the ones who can heal the sick and raise the dead and speak in tongues for six hours and prophesy when those are just a part of the gospel. You with me? And we've elevated the things that we think we want to do to make everybody else, you know, ooh and ah and look at us as super powerful and spiritual. And we've undermined the things that actually build culture. Does this make sense? Like, I, I really don't care whether you can prophesy or not. If, if your family's not whole, it doesn't matter to me. If your wife, you don't have a proper relationship with your wife or your, your, your husband or your kids, if you don't have a revival there in your home, then it doesn't matter what your spiritual gifts are. In fact, I'm going to prove to you that there are certain things that precede the spiritual gifts in Scripture. That if they're not in line, all of the other offices and, all, and orders that God gives us become a moot point. This is why Paul's very descriptive on his order in Ephesians. If you go through the whole book and look at it, not as a random letter that a, a person's writing to a group of people because he misses them, but he's writing to teach them the fundamental elements of how the gospel works in practical life. Therefore, what he puts first is very important because you've got to put that before what comes last. So the reason that Paul outlines Ephesians the way he does is absolutely important. Do you ever wonder why he addresses marriage before he addresses spiritual warfare? <laughs> Yet you got all these people out there who think that they're spiritual giants and spiritual warfare people, but they haven't figured out how to win their husband or their wife. It's amazing. You think you can take down principalities, but you haven't been able to figure out how to win the heart of your, your spouse. See, I told you it might get a little quiet and heavy. <laughs> See, we've divorced all of that in our Christian reality. We think coming to church is this big display of cosmic emotion, and then we go home and treat people like garbage. You know why we do that? Because we treat ourselves that way. Okay. So we need healing, and healing is the fundamental reality of somebody's ability to stand. This is why we can't stand unless we've been healed. There's so many Christian people walking around with so many spiritual wounds that they can't fight. And many times they're, they're trying to get their spiritual wounds healed on their own because they're trying to be super spiritual. When it takes the body to heal certain wounds. Do you realize that there are certain people who are spiritually wounded just simply because they have disassociated themselves from church? Because there's somebody in this room that has the specific call and the specific anointing on their life to bring a specific healing to a specific area in your heart. And if you don't have a relationship with them, you are undermined in your ability to be whole. So a lack of relationship and connection to the body is an ultimate disdain toward oneself. 
I say it all the time like this, is that when you get a cut or a wound, your body heals itself. One part of the body begins to move in such a way that it brings healing to the other part. Does this make sense to you? And so there are certain spiritual, mental, emotional wounds that people in church carry, but they never get close enough to people to be healed. Because they're afraid of what? Being wounded again. <laughs> yeah. See, what the enemy did is he took the element of healing for the church and used it to, by a standard of, of, of history, create wounds in the church so that way we wouldn't trust the healing factors that God put in the church. Does that make sense to you? So, in other words, what, God, what, what, God has, has, what the enemy has, has hurt us with, God is going to use to heal us with. I, I grew up hurt by the church, too. You don't have an excuse. I, I've, I've probably been hurt by the church more than you have. We can compare notes later. But I'm telling you, I'm telling you, there's healing in the body of Christ. Okay? And you have to stay connected. All right. I, I have people all the time like, well, I don't have to go to church because I am the church. Well, then why does the Bible say that as you see Jesus' day coming closer and closer, that you should gather even more. See, we want to talk about end time stuff, and we want to talk about the return of Christ and how all these types of things, but the Bible's specific, that, that, that not forsaking the assembly, that is in direct context. As you see the day approaching, getting closer, <laughs> you should tighten together. Does this make sense? So many spiritual mavericks running around out there. And I know why they run around out there, because they've been hurt by authority. But you know what they try to do? They try to become the authority, and then they end up hurting other people. Because they haven't, been, they haven't, they haven't stayed and been connected long enough to actually be healed. <sighs> Relationships are vulnerable, aren't they? And you got to trust somebody other than yourself, don't you? How many like that? So you know what we do? We claim ourselves as super spiritual if we can see what's wrong in everybody else so we don't have to submit. Yeah. But then ironically, we want everybody else to listen to what comes out of our mouth and submit to us. We're Christian liberals. We live at the end of one-way street. It all goes our direction. This makes sense to you? Okay, verse 2. Listen to this. So Paul is laying out a pattern. He's getting to chapter 6. So I'm kind of condensing some of 1 through 4 since we've gotten here. Everybody wants to go to the, the chapter 6 story. Everybody wants to go to the chapter 6 reality, having power over situations. We don't like feeling weak, yet the reality is that's where you're powerful. We haven't had a revelation of that yet. I'm praying for the church to get the epiphany to hit her square in the eyes that her power is in her weakness. Her power is in her humility. It's not in her domineering over circumstances and subjugating issues. You gain hearts by service. So Paul says in verse 1, walk a certain way, live a certain way. And then he says, this lifestyle that you're living before God, facing him, right, will give you the ability to come into verse 2, which is with all lowliness, I'm going to read 2 through 6 because then we're going to break it apart, or 
5, 6. With all lowliness and meekness, with suffering, long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body, one Spirit, even as you were called in the hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is above all, through all, and in you all. Paul takes four or five verses here, and he tries to set up the rest of the chapter, because how many of you guys know that right after these verses, he gets into the offices? Okay, how important are the offices to the church of Jesus Christ? Absolutely vital. Absolutely vital. In fact, Paul even teaches us, we'll get to it next week hopefully, that if we don't have these offices in play, we have zero chance of becoming in the fullness of Christ. A full-natured person in Jesus coming up into the status of Jesus Christ of Nazareth takes at some point in your life a collision with one or all of the, of the five-fold giftings. You're going to have to encounter a prophet at some point in your life. It takes the prophetic to call out of things inside of your spirit, the things that God is giving you and doing in your life. It takes that to do that. You with me? You also need to encounter an apostolic father or mother in your life who can see the bigger picture than the prophet can see and learn how to apply the things you've been given in a segmented reality into a whole practical reality. And you need a pastoral influence that can help you walk that trail of destiny that have been laid by the other two practically every day of your life. And you need that evangelist bringing more people beside you so that you can have somebody to actually disciple that's coming in behind you to practice what you've been learning and teaching. And you need a teacher to begin to teach you how to do that in an in a educational way that can reach people in, in, in reality. If you take out one of those elements, then you're fighting at a deficit. All the more need, chapter 4, for the power of the unity of the body of Christ. If you don't have the unity, you have a deficit. I know we all are self-partial and self-preferential. We feel like, you know, we don't need anybody and we're all independent. The problem I have with that is that that's not going to be a reality in heaven. And Jesus says, it's, 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 it's as in heaven, so in our, on earth. He teaches us to pray, our Father. I'm sorry, that word my is not there. You understand what I'm saying? Yes. When you pray the Lord's Prayer, you are not praying for yourself. Right. You are praying for the entire family of God. Okay? This is the way Jesus set it up. Okay. So, the first thing we see, go back to verse 2. With all lowliness and gentleness and long-suffering, bearing with one another in love... Why does he say this? Because when you begin to walk towards the, the journey of, of completion in Christ, it's going to take humility on your behalf and everybody else's behalf around you. I don't think the church has truly grabbed a hold of the power of humility. It's the power in which Jesus Christ himself saved the entire world. He demonstrates himself, and, and we'll get to it in Matthew chapter 11, somewhere around 28. He says, that I am meek and lowly in heart. I am a humble individual. And we have to understand that it was him submitting, listen to this now, to the powers of darkness, ultimately to the will of the Father, but circumstantially submitting to the powers of darkness, to his enemies, submitting to his enemies. 
that brought the salvation of the world. Okay? How many times you feel like you see an enemy in your life, whether it's in the church or in your marriage or in the world or whatever, and the first thing you want to do is fight it and defeat it? How do you defeat it? You usually go underneath it. The key is going down, not coming up. The reason you can go down in humility is because you already know where you're seated in heavenly places. But if you don't know where you're seated in heavenly places, you don't have that identity, it's not a part of your character, it's not a part of your ever-waking knowledge, then you're constantly going to be in circumstance trying to put yourself over people because you don't believe you already are. Does that make sense? But when you realize that you're seated with Christ, that gives you the privilege, the right, and the honor to go below them. Because it's exactly what Jesus did for us. He was the king, yet he washed feet. You ever pray the prayer, Lord, make me like you? Guess what? There's a long line of foot washing right in front of you, but you're not going to see it because of how it makes you feel and the people he's going to call you to do, do it to you. See, God's not going to call you to wash your friend's feet. He's going to call you to wash your enemy's feet. You with me? The power of humility. See, there's no argument that can be even stated when you're washing someone's feet. When you're serving somebody and letting them beat on you, there's no war. There's just conviction. You make sense? So Paul's demonstrating to the church of Jesus how we need to have Humility, gentleness, long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Why? Because when you get around community, you're going to need every one of those. Because I know, I know we think that we're real important. But you irritate somebody just as much as they irritate you. I promise you. The key to community is loving people greater than the irritation. You love them anyway, and I'll explain why here in a minute, okay? Lowliness, gentleness, what if they're being mean to me? What if they offended me? What if they said something mean to me at church? Does, it, does that give you any right to not obey this word? There is no circumstance that releases you from the power of community. There's none. Jesus stayed one with his bride even when she was a whore. You with me? He didn't leave you when he had the right to. Because honestly, we're not that great. We're just not. Outside of him, we're absolutely zero. Okay. So, let's go to verse 2. Being humble, right? So Paul introduces humility before he addresses the fivefold gifts. <laughs> Why? Because if you're not operating in, fi- in humility before the fivefold gifts come, you're not going to receive what the fivefold gifts have. And if you're a part of the fivefold, you need the humility to be able to learn how to serve those who are being humble as well. So all of it runs underneath this humility of spirit. So humility would be almost like peace. It would be the, the bedrock of the Son of God, of the kingdom of heaven. It's, it's the identity of the spirit. Does this make sense to you? Humility is the identity of the Spirit of God. It's the identity that Jesus took on as a human form. He said, I am. Right? What did he say to Moses in the, back, in the beginning? <laughs> I am. Right? 
But then in Matthew 11, he says, I am what? I am humility. That's what I am. I took on in my flesh humility. Just for him to become flesh was an act of humility. <laughs> Have you ever thought about that? Like, I don't want to get weird, but, I mean, God never had to go to the bathroom before he became Jesus. It's a humbling thing. Think about it. He never knew what it was to be tired. Never. See, experientially, I'll say this, and some of you might disagree with me, but I just, that's fine. Experientially, God never knew what it was like to be a human before he came, became one. He knew humanity. He knew what was in humanity. He knew all the DNA and study of humanity. He put humanity together, but he never was a human. So when he became human, it was an act of humility to become us so that we could become like him. Does this make sense to you? The very coming of Jesus Christ of Nazareth to the earth was an act of humility. The fact that he didn't come as a ruling, reigning king out of heaven, riding a horse with a flame of fire and subjugating all of his enemies. The fact that he came as a weak, innocent, powerless baby. I like to say this all the time, that Jesus was a real human. When he was, you know, six months old, you couldn't tickle him and he'd just start quoting scripture. He was a real baby that cried and fussed and had to have his diaper changed and defecated himself. This is God becoming one with us. The act of humility to be and to live our life so that we could live his. And Paul starts this saying, you need to be humble with one another. In other words, how you treat each other is going to determine whether you're able to receive from the next chapter I'm about to give to you with having the fivefold operating in your midst. And why do we need the fivefold? Because that's where God took all this captivity captive. We'll get into it next week. And gave gifts to men. In other words, he took something from hell that hell took something from us and he gave it back to us and that's the piece we were missing in order to be unified with him. But to get to that part, we have to have lowliness and gentleness and long-suffering and bearing with one another. That's an indication of lots of time. See, we have enough humility to usually get through one or two offenses, but what happens when somebody offends you for a year straight? That's when your maturity is tested. See, you know how you, you, know how you can gauge your maturity? As if in great lengths of sorrow and trial, you still respond like God without having to think about it. Most people only have a little bit, and then their patience wears out. You know why? If your patience is thin, so is your love. Because uh, well, love is, yeah. 
So some people, you know, I say it all the time, but you don't need to pray for more patience, you need to pray for more love. Because if you love people, you'll be patient. Does this make sense to you? So, humility was the precursor in this verse before we get to everything else. So I want to read it to you, Isaiah 57, 15. You don't have to turn there. You can if you want. But it's Isaiah 57, 15. It says, for thus says the high and lofty one that inhabits eternity. It's powerful. I mean, it's a, it's a really powerful way to start a conversation. God saying, for th- Thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabits eternity. How do you inhabit eternity? I don't understand that. Eternity has no boundaries. It's it's forever backwards as much as it is forever forwards and forever to the right and forever to the left. But he inhabits all of it. This one who's high and lofty who inhabits eternity, he's now speaking. I think we should pay attention. Yes? He says whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite heart and a humble spirit to revive the spirit of of the humility and to revive the heart of the contrite one. So God's saying here, I exist and I fill all of eternity, but I exist with the one who has a humble What does this mean? It means humility automatically postures you in an internal reality. You understand this? So let's look at it this way. All right. So God dwells with the humble. That's what it says. Yes? Can we agree? No, y'all didn't. Okay. You didn't turn there. You obeyed. That's okay. All right. So he dwells with the humble, and the humble are to dwell with each other, right? But if God inhabits eternity as the high and lofty one, but he dwells with the contrite and the humble, then that means if you're humble, you're where? You're reigning with him. You with me? Okay. So humility sets you in the habitation of God. We were singing that song, I want to know your heart. Well, that's what it is. It's humility. It's love toward one another. That's the heart of God. Right? So if he sets you in the habitation of God, you just, so our lowness, our humility, our lowness brings us into his highness. He says he's the high and lofty one, right? But I dwell with, as the high and lofty one, the one who's humble and low. How do we know this? Because Jesus took upon himself that character, that formation. And he also dwelt with God. And he, Jesus lived a certain way so that we could embody him as he embodies us. And then we could be one with him so that we could reign with him in the heavenly places. You, you, you making sense of this? So how important is humility? <laughs> you want to dwell with God? Yes. Right. What we can also say is this. is Every time we're not operating in humility, we're not operating with God. So if we're not operating in humility, then what's left for us to operate in? Anger, hate, pride. If we're not operating in humility, we're operating in the Adamic nature. Who owns the Adamic nature? So it could be cutting out all the middlemen. If we're not operating in humility, we're operating in the spirit and power of the devil. What was the thing that got 
devil kicked out of heaven. Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. I will what? Be lifted up. I will be like the most high God. I, I, I. Right? The pride is what got kicked him out. Why? Because God does not exist with arrogance. He cannot. Period. So every time we embrace humility, we're embracing the nature and the posture and the eternal placement with, with Abba. How many of you guys know that humility can't be, it's not a gift? Listen, there's only two ways to get humility in your life. One of them you don't even want to get close to. The Bible says you must what? Humble yourself. It is a choice. If God ever humbles you, you'll barely survive the encounter. Ask Nebuchadnezzar. If you push the line to a point in life where God wants you humble and you're not going to submit to that humility, it will not be a pretty thing for you. See, humility is a choice that literally postures God in our life to the degree that we wish him to be postured. But it's a choice. So when does humility come? Is it this overwhelming presence that you receive in prayer and now all of a sudden you're empowered to go into circumstances and all of a sudden just love people and humble them? No, it comes whenever you get hit with something and you want to fight and you want to usurp, but you stop yourself and you go... <laughs> Jesus, I know this is right. I don't have the power to do it, but I need you right now. I choose humility. And don't expect this overwhelming presence to hit you. Because when you're digging dirt out of somebody else's toenails, it's never fun. But when you do, something changes in that environment. Something in your character begins to shift. And as you posture yourself continually in this attitude, eventually what you had to pray for to get strength for becomes your natural knee-jerk reaction. Because you've, you've postured and conditioned yourself to a spirit of humility. You've chosen the nature of Christ. Why? Because Jesus had to choose humility too. He had to choose to come down here. Humility is always a choice. It's something that's within everybody's power and grasp. But it's something that most people don't choose. With me? So every exercise of humility is not only a, on a, an assault on hell itself, because when we're, when we're antagonistic to the spirit of arrogance and pride, we're doing it by the spirit of the nature of Jesus. It's an antagonism to hell itself. But it's also, it's also a power that brings us closer into the presence of the eternal living God. Does this make sense to you? All right. So taking up the cross is the physical embodiment of humility. When Jesus calls us to take up our cross, that's what he's asking us to do, to humble ourselves and obey. You realize you can't choose humility? You cannot have a scenario where you can choose humility without an enemy of sorts where you think you're right and they're wrong. When an argument happens, how, 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 how organic are you or am I in our, cho in our choice of, of, of just being humble? 
Because that's when it's that's when it has to be chosen. Again, we want to over spiritualize everything and think that you know humility is a choice. I think it's awesome. Not fun, but awesome. I want you to go to Matthew chapter 11. We're going to camp here just for a second. I want to give you some pointers on humility, what it takes, how it works. Matthew chapter 11, 28 and 29. Jesus says here, come unto me, you guys know the verse, all you that labor and are heavy laden. Okay? How come there's so much depression in church, people? Because they haven't come to Jesus. They think a salvific reality is all it takes. I got saved once. No, you have to continue to come to him, right? That's the order. You continue to come to him, right? And then what does he say? He says, come to me, all you who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, right? Now the next verse. What is the rest for? We would just want the rest. See, the next verse is absolutely vital to the first instruction he gave us to come to him. We just want that first verse because it makes us feel better. <laughs> it's called selfish Christianity. Okay? What does he say? He says, what? Take my yoke upon you and... Learn from me. For I am, and, and so he's not only defining himself, he's also defining what we will be if we learn from him. Does this make sense? And then you will, what? Find rest for your soul. What's your soul? It's your mind, your will, and your emotions. You'll find rest for your soul when you learn from me. When you learn from humility, rest and peace will come, and you'll find this, this place of rest in your life. Why? Because all of the antagonism that's coming from the outside cannot stop the peace that's inside of you. It's the same way when the Spirit of God hovered over that chaotic water in the beginning of creation, that there was such an antagonism to the Word of God being spoken that the Spirit of the Lord came over the Word and began to bring peace and settlement because there is no demonic force that can stop peace. None. In fact, devils get very, very angry when you do not oblige in that physical battle and you just keep your peace. I never saw Jesus get, get excited when he fought demons. Ever. Look at him on the cross when he's taken all of your sin and all of our shame and my sin and, and disgust and filth. He just takes it and he's, he's not fighting the enemy. He just holds it. And he prays for those who are killing him. Because he's a man of rest. <laughs> I want to be like you, Jesus. Prepare for lots of feet and lots of crosses and lots of yokes. So, all right, with me? So the weariness of life is in context with a life lived in contrast to humility. So in other words, when somebody's not living in humility, they're going to have a life of unrest. Because you're constantly fighting every other opinion that's not yours in your life. And you're trying to win people with argumentation instead of 
love and patience and service. And all you're going to get into is a headbutting competition. And if you actually do manage to win, I don't even know what that looks like anyway. What does that look like when you win an argument? How, I mean, how do you even know if you actually won an argument because the other guy quit? Maybe because he quit, he was smarter than you and he's the one that actually won. Like, I, what does it mean to win an argument? That you, that you point out somebody's hypocrisy while somehow hiding your own? That someone was quick-witted enough to be able to pin you in a corner, of a hypocritical corner, yet they weren't quick-witted enough to defend themselves against the, one, the, the hypocrisy that you, you possess in your life? Because tell me you don't have hypocrisy in your life. Everybody does. That's why we need the blood. Amen? So the weariness of life is in context. In this verse, Matthew 11, the weariness is in context with a life that's not lived in humility. Right? You bear the arrogance of life. You bear a critical spirit. You bear a pride and a self-exaltation. And that brings a weight on you that eventually breaks the heart of man. How, do you, how, how awesome do you feel when you're, when you're critical of somebody else? Because c- congratulations, the only thing you can see is what the devil sees himself. So I don't know how that's a good thing. If all you can see is the dirt and, there's, and you miss the pearl, then you're not seeing like Jesus. So, so Jesus says what? He says, take, take his yoke on us, okay, which is the yoke of humility. Let me, let me explain something about a yoke. So most of you know this. But when, when, when you yoke two animals together... Right? If one of them's not equal, if they're not equal, this is why the Bible says don't be unequally yoked, but Jesus chose to yoke himself with us and we weren't equal. <laughs> but the, the stronger one ends up pulling all the weight. Right? And it wears the stronger one out if it's not God himself. Right? So, so when Jesus, there's always two yokes in your life. Okay? I'll explain this here in a minute. You're always yoked to Jesus, always, because he won't let you go. But yet he will yoke you with other people because you have to learn from him. Okay? You with me? That word learn is the same word that they use for being a disciple. Okay? It's being a disciple. It's learning from Christ. So he says, take his yoke upon us. A yoke binds the strong with the weak, but it, not only, it, teaches, it also teaches the weak, but it alleviates their inability to accomplish the work. So in other words, they can't do the work, but you can. So you pull for them. But after a while, you start expecting them to take up their slack. And pick, pick up. But if they don't, guess what? You still have to pull the load. This is when your maturity gets tested. Whenever you think someone next to you should be farther than what they really are, but yet God honors their will and their choice to stay where they are, but you don't. And because you see that they're not moving on with where they're supposed to be in life, and it's causing an inconvenience upon you, and you have to bear that thing, guess what? It challenges your, your maturity. But Jesus is yoked to you. Is he still a little bit sharper spiritually than you are? But he's still pulling with you, isn't he? And you probably weigh him down sometimes according to his plan. I know I have. But Jesus doesn't stop pulling with me just because I'm not where I should be. He pulls me into where I need to be because he's the stronger and that's what it does. And it's a humble act of love to carry somebody into their season that they need to be. Whatever what we do is we divide because of somebody's inability or weakness or we blame them for it and we separate. 
because we're so holy and they're so unholy. And this makes sense to you. In fact, the Bible is pretty clear about what New Testament separation should look like. And it's not what you think. Legally, pastors and churches are supposed to get people out who cause division more than they are to get people out who are in sin. So you can have this pious individual who thinks they're so great in God causing division in the church, and they have less ability biblically to stay in the body than a homosexual does. Why? Because disunity fragments the entire work of God himself. It destroys the work of the cross, which is supposed to bring unity. If you were here earlier and have been here through us with Ephesians, we've talked about how important unity was. Paul echoes it many times in the book, and he's actually going to echo it again. Endeavoring to what keep the unity of the Spirit. Okay? You with me? Okay, so understanding, like, uh, th there's, uh, there's no learning without yoking. He says, come to me. You get, put the verse back up there, would you please? Come to me, and you will find rest for your soul, right? You've got to learn. You've got to be yoked to learn. Next verse. Learn from me. There is no learning without a yoking. Who wants to be yoked to somebody else in here? One person. Listen, I'm telling you, you want to grow in Christ? God's going to put somebody in your life that irritates you. And you need them. You need them. See, a yoke binds the strong with the weak, right? And the weak always irritate the strong. Unless it's just Jesus. He doesn't ever get irritated. Well, he gets angry. That's different. <laughs> uh, you understand that there's no learning without yoking. Learn from me. Take my yoke. In other words, you've got to constantly, every day of your life, be yoked to Jesus and learn from him. And now, as you're learning from here, here's what it looks like. What happens is, is you're going through your life and you realize, I'm not what I should be. I'm not what I, uh, uh, I've not become what I should be. And I'm failing and I'm doing everything wrong. And all of a sudden, you see this love of God in your life through a service or a time on your prayer in your life. And then God just scoops you up and loves on you. And it's just like, I'm not worthy of all of this. And, and you feel this overwhelming uh, acceptation from God. And you just realize, I, I'm not, I'm not. What is he trying to teach you? What I've done to you, you do to others. I can say it like this. Freely you have received. Freely you give. So how do you learn how to yoke with others? You learn how to yoke with others by watching how God treats you under the yoke that he has with you. So if he's patient with you and your shortcomings, screw-ups, it goes back to verse 2. With all lowliness of mind, all meekness, forbearing one another. With me? It takes a yoke in your life to make you what you need to be. You'll never become like Jesus without an antagonist in your life. This is why community is important. Because the antagonists that you have are supposed to love you, which actually gives you the ability to overcome. Whereas the antagonists of the world don't love you. 
you put a bunch of people like this together in a room and tell them to accomplish a purpose, there's going to be about 100 ideas about how to get it done. And you're going to have about eight or ten people who are true leaders fighting with one another on how to get it finished. And a bunch of followers going, I'm just waiting on what to be told to do. You know, and it's, you're going to see the gifts of the body start coming, but there's going to be an antagonism. And there's nothing, guess what? Nothing will get done without deference. <laughs> At some point, the greatest leader in the room will go, we'll do it your way. Even if they know it's wrong. Because unity is more important than the job. Why? Because a divided house cannot stand. Okay? You with me? All right. So, Jesus yokes himself to us, the superior yokes to the inferior, the perfect yoked to the imperfection. And God's going to send somebody that's going to really chafe you. I say it all the time, but some of us, I'm, I'm that to some of you guys. And I enjoy it. I really do. <laughs> to learn Christ in this sense means that after we've been yoked to him and personally witnessed how he treats the lesser, we have learned now how to properly yoke ourselves to others. Does this make sense to you? So what is, why am I even in Matthew 11 if we're in Ephesians 4? Because humility is Paul's target here of pointing people to how we need to be one with one another before we can get to the rest of these things. Does this make sense? Okay. All right. This is why vagabond Christians or like people who don't, you know, submit to authorities in their life, they find fault in every church so as to escape the yoking that they'll encounter and they'll never reach the likeness of Christ that they desire. They'll never do it. The only thing they'll, they'll, they'll achieve in their life is an inflated sense of a spiritual ego. Because the power is always in being last, not first. What does Jesus say? The greatest in the kingdom is the least on the earth. Do you know why? Because the least chose to be so. Jesus isn't looking here going, show me who has the biggest ministry, who has the most soul saved. He's down here going, show me who's choosing to be last. Show me who's choosing to serve. Show me who's choosing to even set apart, set aside their spiritual gift and being right in what they see so that they can love and serve someone who's wrong. You understand that if the church operated this way, we'd be unstoppable. All of the gifts subject to the spirit of humility. No, you go first. No, you go first. No, you go first. No, you go first. We'll try it your way. No, we'll try it your way. And then you're looking at each other and going, brother, if it fails, I'm with you. We're going to do it. I disagree, but if it fails, I'm with you in the disagreement. I'm, I'm with you. I'm, I'm unified in the failure, and we're going to get through it together. Isn't that what marriage is? All right, so being, being yoked to someone who grates and irritates you shows you how often you treat God when you're yoked to him. So pay attention to those people who irritate you in your life. 
As many times as God's shown you a mirror. Because you're yoked to him. Don't, I said Jesus doesn't get irritated, I lied. Um, <laughs> you ever read the scriptures where he, he sighed in his spirit, he groaned in his spirit? You know what that looks like? Uh, that's what it looks like. And I am positive he does that with me all the time. Positive. I'm, I'm 100%. It's those moments that you yoke up anyway. Spiritually immature people can't. They're so hypersensitive that even if somebody looks at them wrong, they're, just, they're offended. Because offense is the power of their life. It's how they manipulate people. Because they don't have the ability to win them through love, they'll win them through the manipulation of offense. Self-pity, rejection. See, relational unity doesn't come due to holding passions and hobbies in common. So when he's talking about being unified, he's not talking about all of us having like the same likes. Okay? It's not, it's unity, relational unity doesn't come because we hold all the passions and hobbies in the same common. It comes when the strong chooses to bear and hold fast to the weak who are causing much trouble. What did Paul say about the body of Christ? He said, I'm here to fill up that which is what? Lacking. He didn't blame the body for what was lacking, even though it should have been there. Somebody else should have been picking up that thing. But Paul said, since nobody else is, I'm not going to blame you for it. I will simply do it myself. I see a need. I'll father the need, and I will do so because the church needs the need filled. Does this make sense to you? Okay. All right. Here, here, here's the problem. When we encounter difficulties with one another, we encounter spiritual immaturity. Every time. You have a problem with a brother or sister in Christ, the immaturity is on their end, your end, or both. Somewhere, somebody's being immature. Every time. The problem is, is that most of the time when we encounter people in church-type settings or family settings, we're encountering immaturity in a 35-year-old, a 55-year-old, a 65-year-old, and we're like, man, you should be beyond this by now. And technically, you are correct. <laughs> but some people at 65 years old are spiritual babies, and they don't know they are. Because their arrogance in their spirituality, especially if they've got some sort of theological hierarchy in their mind over themselves, over everybody else, all they've done is, is never grown uh, in humility and likeness of Christ. Their growth is their intellectual prowess that they use to dominate everybody with. And yet they're still infants because their pride has kept them babies. I know people that walk with Jesus for 25 years and they're no more different than anybody who's been saved for five. Practically, how they treat people. Snippy, arrogant, bitey, domineering, controlling, fragmented, broken, but real churchy. Hard. Those people are really hard. God, that's who God links me with. I, those irritate me. Those people irritate me, and I get a bunch of them. He sends them to me all the time. And I'm like, I need to get through this so that way it can stop. <laughs> I'm not through it yet. Y'all got to pray for me, okay? okay. <sighs> Grace, Lord. Matthew 12, 25, Jesus knew their thoughts, and he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every house divided against itself will not stand. How important is humility and unity? 
Do you realize it costs Jesus' life to establish the kingdom of God? And do you realize that we can undermine everything he did on the cross with one simple act of division? This is why Paul says to Titus, mark those that cause division among you and get them out of the church. The devil thrives on offense and division. It's how he breaks apart unity. If he can break apart unity, he can break apart humility. If he can break apart humility, he can break apart the fivefold office. If he can break apart the fivefold office, then he can break apart the warfare that's coming in chapter 6. And when the war comes, he's got us all right where he wants us. And we'll sit there and result back to our little spiritual shenanigans where we shout and praise God and throw our fist at the devil when we've got problems with everybody around us. You ever wonder why Jesus says, if you come to worship me and you, fit and you realize your brother has ought against you, you should lay your gift at the altar, stop worshiping, and go back and make it right with your, with your brother, and then come back and worship me? People are like, oh, I, don't, I just serve Jesus only. Well, if you serve Jesus only, you got a problem with somebody. Jesus is going to make you stop serving him and go serve somebody else for a while so you can actually be right enough to come back and serve him. You with me? This super spiritual reality, this junk that people think I don't have to be connected to anybody is, is, is a load of garbage. It's an absolute load of garbage. And then we think, look at some of these people that aren't connected or submitted. Or, or Now listen, I'm not saying you submit to abuse. That's not, I'm not saying that. All right, I'm, that's a little caveat there. So just, you don't do that. If somebody's abusing you and beating you, then, then get out. Right? But I'm talking about people who are just generally trying to love God and trying to do right. People who are trying to serve the Lord. Right? They're trying to do good, and, they're trying, and it, you've got to learn how to bump elbows with them and still keep peace and defer. The fivefold gifts can't operate in the body where humility is not present. Does it make sense to you guys? Yes. All right. All right, let's go to verse 3, and we'll try to finish this up. Try your best. This is one version I'm going to read. To let God's spirit keep your hearts united. Do this by living in peace. Where it says endeavoring. That word means to labor. <laughs> Fight really hard to keep unity amongst one another. You're understanding unity comes by the spirit. It comes by the spirit of God. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That word bond literally means ligament. In other words, be joined together, ligament to ligament, bone to bone in the body of Christ, in peace and shalom rest. Why? Because we're sons and daughters of God, and we should be operating as peacemakers, joined to one another. And if at any point... Some little gift discrepancy begins to bring division between brother and sister. They immediately bail. Listen to me. They immediately should bail off the gift they possess and bind together on the love and the unity that they believe in. You with me? There's so many times in my natural gift, I'm not allowed certain times by the Spirit of God to, to be who I really am in front of certain people because I know they can't handle it. So I have to be all things to all men. And I literally have to put a cap on my gift <laughs> just to have a relationship with those people because they can't handle who I am yet. Do I blame them for that? Well, you should be able to, uh, no. 
When you raise children, you understand they go through stages of growth, and you have to be certain things to them at certain times in their life. Otherwise, they're never going to grow. No matter how much you want that three-month-old to stop crying, it's not a disciplinary issue. It's a need issue. <laughs> no matter how much they're hurting and you and causing you lack of sleep, and you have to just buck up and take it. You can't be what you normally are because they're too young to take it. So in other words, a lot of spiritual immaturity, guys, mark this. A lot of spiritual immaturity is nothing more than someone dominating their gift over somebody else because they, in their gift, they feel like they're the ones that are right. But if your gift is bringing division, I don't care how right you are. It's wrong. Okay? Because if you're going to go about right and wrong, we've preached about this a bunch. If you're going to go back to right and wrong, you might as well go back to the garden and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's not my fault. It's her fault. Well, it's not my fault. It seems it's the demon did it. It's the devil's fault. And nobody has the ability to give life. You with me? All right. So unity cannot be accomplished in the flesh. Why? Because it's a spiritual issue. The flesh has to be crucified, and the spirit has to be able to, be, to, to rise, to be able, in every situation, to be able to bring unity. Right? Anything that's it's fleshly derived that, that looks like unity is just, it's just a cheap copy of, of, of trying to uh, enforce spiritual reality. All right, so verse 4. He says, all of you who are part of the same body, there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called in the hope of your calling or your invitation by God. Yeah, you get this? There's one body. Guess what? You're a part of it. There's, it, says, it doesn't say there's two bodies or three bodies or four bodies. There's one body, and you're a part of it. Okay? Now, there are times where certain parts of the body have to be cut off if they refuse to be connected to the life source. This is what Jesus meant. He says, if your eye offends you, gouge it out. Eventually, a, 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 over time, there's, there's parts of the body that don't, that don't operate the way that they have to be cut off. It's not the plan of God. It's absolutely not the plan of God. But guess what? God will never take away the will of a human being. Ever. Ever. Your spirituality will never override the will of another person. Your revelation will never override their will. If your love doesn't gain them and your relationship doesn't gain them, then sometimes they do have to be cut off in order for the whole body to be healed. He says, but there's one hope in your calling. Next verse. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. How important is unity? In other words, there's not a lot of ideas here. There's one Jesus. There's one, Paul says in other places, you've been baptized into one body. When he talks about baptism, what he's talking about is you coming into a body. You're being baptized. You're being brought into a body. Something bigger than yourself. It's no longer an isolated issue. I know we, we've, we've tended to, in the, in the American culture, say that you, know, you have your own personal individual relationship with Jesus, and that is true. That is the yoke that you and him bear. But because you have that personal relationship with Jesus, he is a corporate God, and he will command and demand you at some point to step away from that self-focused relationship into a horizontal reality. He will. In fact, what good is your 
vertical relationship if it's not having a horizontal influence. You with me? So to be divided against one another, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, to be divided against one another, we're actually dividing ourselves. It's self-mutilization to have a fence between a brother and sister in Christ. I would even go as far as to say that the enemy knows a little more about this than we do, and he knows who God sent to your life to heal you, and many times he irritates that person to such a degree that that's all you see is their irritation instead of the fact that God sent them there to be healed or to heal you. Okay, next verse. Was it we on six? One God, listen to this, this is amazing. The Father of all. You and I have the same daddy. I'm sorry. You're going to spend a lot of time with me in heaven. You better get used to it. All right? We have one Father who is what? Above everybody. Everyone. Right? But he's also through everyone. With me? So if I don't see you purely, and all I see is the things that you're doing wrong, then when God finally decides to move through you, I'm going to reject the move of God because I've personified you in a way that God doesn't. So through all, God begins to move. If I don't keep a clear conscience towards you and a heart of love, then when the Holy Spirit speaks to me through you and I don't receive it because I've deemed you to be X, Y, and Z, then I've lost my own healing that God sent to me through you because of my, my improper perceptions. See, see, bottom line, guys, you need the person sitting next to you. You need. That need is very strong where you need them. It's very difficult to be yoked to someone where you know their weakness. <laughs> Knowledge doesn't empower you for anything but accusation. That's why we should have never eaten from that tree in the first place. It's hard to be yoked with somebody when you know their weakness. You're supposed to trust the one they're yoked to. Does that make sense? You're supposed to trust the Christ that's yoked to them. And he's through all and what? In you all. In other words, this. The last statement is this. If I treat you terribly, I'm treating him terribly. If I'm disunified with you, I'm disunified with. I have a whole message. You can go look it up on the website called uh, Oneness, and it's not what you think it is. And it proves to you, scripturally speaking, that what you do to other people is what you do to Jesus. So I don't care what you do in your prayer closet. I care how you treat people when you come out. You with me? The Bible says whoever lends to the poor or gives to the poor lends to, the, to, the, to their maker. What you do to other people is absolutely massive in how you treat God himself. 
So in all of us, there's a double yoking, going back to Matthew 11. We're yoked to Christ, but we're yoked to each other. Some of you need the irritations in your life. There's some people in here who have been with us long enough that you have, you have certain irritations with certain people in the, in the church. You don't like people as much as you like others. And that's where you need to work. That's where you need to work. You need to start pouring into the ones you, that irritate you. <laughs> it's hard, isn't it? Like, man, I don't want to go spend time with that person. All they do is just, they're just so negative. Well, that's why God puts you there to be a positive. If you're half as spiritual as you thought you were, you see it as an opportunity instead of a, a chore. So, so humility is never an easy lesson. So, Jesus didn't see hell or its fury on the way to the cross. You, you get that. What he saw was his father and the power of resurrection that came from his humility. So when you're going into a situation where you're yoked with somebody who's very difficult, when Paul's telling us in Ephesians 4 to be yoked together, to be bound together with those ligaments, when you see the problems, you see this, this, the issues, you see the, the stresses and the failures and the sin, when you see those things, you've got to begin to learn to see past them and see the humility that's going to bring the resurrection power in their life. And you've got to be willing to stand on that for a good length of time. Because you're going to do it for six months and they're not going to change. You're going to go, I thought this worked. Well, you try it for five years and then come back and talk to me. <gasps> well, are they not worth it? But they, that's really going to cost me a lot. It costs Jesus a lot, too. Guys, I've walked with people for 15 years so patiently and so, and they just, they, it all ended in them being my enemy. They just hate me today. This is the day they're gone. They think I am like the devil incarnate. 15 years of pouring into somebody's life. And this doesn't happen just once. This is a bunch of times. A bunch of times. But you know what? I'd do it all again. Because you know what I figured out? I'm not doing it for them. I'm doing it for him. Why? Because there's one God, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. God in all, through all, and above all. And how I treat you is how I treat him. So every time that there's something in your life that irritates me, it's my opportunity to love God inside of you. So humility. It's the key power to being able to properly operate in all the gifts that are coming. As we get into next week, we start talking about the power of the gifts and the fivefold and all the offices God begins to set up in the body of Christ. All of them are servant. The spirit of humility is supposed to be pervasive in the body of Christ. To serve and love one another. You with me? Again, humility has to be chosen. You're not going to get an overwhelming feeling to be humble when somebody is right in your face. <laughs> Especially someone like me. <laughs> I get popping when that happens. I I have to start calming down. <laughs> I haven't tried it yet, but one of these days, if that's the, when that happens, I'm just going to start speaking in tongues right to their face and just, you know, just. <laughs> it's for my sake, bro. It's for my sake. Leave me alone for a minute and I'll be good. <laughs> but when that happens and you're faced with that reality, it's a choice. This is your opportunity to serve somebody, to defer 
and to let God be God in his body and understand that sometimes you don't have to have it all under control. But the power of being yoked together, one to another. Pay attention, please. Pay attention to those in your life who irritate you. They are sent on assignment from God to make you into the image of Jesus. You need a yoke. You need to be yoked to somebody who is weaker, not as strong as you, not as far along as you. And they're going to bear on you and it's going to cost you time and energy and money and sleep sometimes even. And you're going to go in, this, in, your, in the power of your own strength for as long as you can. And at some point, at some point, you're going to find your, your breaking point. That's when you begin to grow. That moment right there where you're like, I can't do this anymore. God's like, yeah, that's the whole point. You exhausted your strength. Now let me give you mine. I've had so many people in my life I went back to God on over the past 25 years of pastoring, and I said, God, I can't love them. <laughs> I don't have it. I need your love for them. If you do not give me your love for them, I cannot love them. I don't have it. And he always has. Something happened. Something changed. Something shifted in my heart. And I saw them in a different way. I'm going to close with this. There was one lady. I, she's no longer with us, but I still love her and care for her. But she was the most obnoxious, hard to get along with, arrogant, self-pushy person I've ever met in my life. It always had to be about her. Everything was about her. If she walked into a room, she dominated the conversation. It was about her issues, her ailments, her this, her that, what she made, what she didn't make, you know, what, how her week was. I mean, it's just you could not get a word in edgewise, and it was always just her, her, her. And it was so annoying. And it just got to the point where it's just like, I can't do this. Like, this is really overwhelming for me. And uh, I finally went back to God, and I said, I, I, I can't do it. I can't, I can't help this woman. I don't have it. I said, I need you to love her through me because nothing about her is even remotely attractive to me. I don't even like her as a person. And he showed me instantly as I was praying because I was really serious about this. I was like, God, I want to love her. I just can't. And he, he showed me, and I saw in my mind as I was closing my eyes, I was praying, I saw her in front of a TV as a, like a little five-year-old girl and she had been molested and raped and had no family present. And later on, I found out that the way her parents would deal with her is they just put a huge bowl of M&Ms in front of her and put her in front of the television. She had no human contact for most of her life. And she'd been abused sexually and emotionally and mentally. And it all made sense why she was the way she was. And I had so much more compassion for her. And I was able to begin to love her and pray for her and minister to her. And sadly, we, we still lost her, and she's in the world to this day. But you need to see God in people. And that's the only possible way you're going to have unity. But I need to get through this chapter so that way we can understand what Paul's doing and where he's headed. Is this helping you guys? Please understand that Paul's not just randomly writing a message. 
He only has so many pages to write on. He's got to keep everything put together. And he's leading people to this one moment of spiritual authority, of standing on what God has said. And if we do what he's telling us to do here, not only will it make us like Christ, but it will glorify our Father in heaven. And when we get there, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. You know why he says servant? Because that's what servants do. They're humble and they serve. Amen? You can stand. So, Lord, we need you. We need you for each other. I don't need you for me so much anymore as I need you for the people next to me. Because I know who I am in you, and I know what you've done in my life, and I know you love me, and I'm confident of your ability in my life. But I need you more and more for the people you've placed in my life. I need you to be love in and through me. Father, I need every opportunity of grace to choose humility, to choose the cross, to choose the service, to choose the deference, to choose the sacrifice, especially if they don't deserve it. So form this mind in me that I might be in the fullness of the mind of Christ and help me value the community you've given me so that your heart can be established with grace and peace in the earth. We love you, we thank you, and we praise you, we honor you, and we ask these things to be done in our hearts. And everybody that agrees, say amen.